Hello, my name is Alexander Aleem, and I'm happy to host another episode of the AOA's Lessons in Orthopedic Leadership. We continue to bring excellent topics in orthopedic leadership, and I'm excited to welcome Tanner Mitten and Alex Thompson from Medicratic.com to discuss their residency application selection. I'll give them a brief introduction in just a second, but I wanted to remind our listeners that the CORD, or Council of Orthopedic Residency Directors, is a great platform for anyone that is interested in resident education or fellow education. All you have to be is a faculty member and an affiliate institution. You don't have to be a program director to gain access to this. Please visit the AOA website for upcoming content and CORD meetings. Spring CORD meeting will be in San Francisco on February 15th, and we look forward to have a great meeting there. As I mentioned, I'm happy to introduce Tanner and Alex to the podcast, co-founders of Medicratic. Medicratic was conceived in the minds of these two medical students who looked at the cumbersome process of the match and wondered how it could be better for both students and programs. By partnering with tech professionals and residency programs, they are bringing speed and efficiency of tech to the process, giving everyone freedom to focus on the medicine. Alex is the president and medical student at Perelman School of Medicine at University of Pennsylvania. He hails from London, England, and moved to the U.S. after earning his master's in epidemiology from the University of Oxford. In his downtime, he enjoys cooking and photography, but admits that his culinary creations might not help the reputation of British cuisine. Tanner is the chief executive officer and is a medical student at University of Texas Southwestern and an MBA candidate at University of Texas at Dallas. Previously attended BYU, where he graduated with a degree in economics. In his free time, he enjoys to teach human anatomy to his three children. Alex and Tanner, thanks so much for coming. We really appreciate y'all taking the time and letting the AOA and the leadership know about this new platform. Yeah, we're excited to be here and to uh, discuss some of the opportunities available here as well. I'm incredibly glad that we managed to get this in, given that, and my goodness, what is it? The upcoming cycle starts next week. Yes. Absolutely. So it is September 21st we're recording this. So we are exactly six days away from when the ERAS applications open. I guess first off, just like, you know, how did this get started? You know, you're in two different medical schools. How'd y'all get connected? And what was sort of the impetus? Obviously, there's a lot of changing stuff within the resident selection process. Full disclosure, I am a program director for orthopedic surgery. So I'm really excited about the next kind of four to five weeks to to get through all of this. So maybe, you know, Tanner, let us know kind of how this started, kind of what brought this on and, and how did this even kind of come out. Yeah, so sometime last year in, in the in the summertime, I was at a conference in Philadelphia where Alex is at. And being a, a poor medical student, I slept on his couch for the few days that I was there for, for the conference. And at that time, we discussed a, a paper of mine, a publication that had recently been accepted that looks at the, the effects of capping interviews and what that would do to, to match results. And we ended up talking a lot about this, about the data analysis that went into that. And it led to hours of a deeper discussion about the challenges of the matching process from the applicant side of things. All the, the challenges the applicants deal with throughout interview season and, and that whole thing. And that was really the catalyst for the birth of this idea that we have lots of applicants and full disclosure, I will be one of those applicants relatively soon who are pouring their souls into these applications. But due to massive time constraints, it's really hard to get these applications actually read and fully considered by, by a lot of programs. At least for me, I feel like, you know, Tanner obviously came to this kind of general concept, like, you know, somewhat earlier than I did, but it was, uh, I guess it was actually just a few weeks after you stayed with me. That was actually when the ERAS cycle opened 
last year, I guess the 22-23 cycle, and I actually ended up um, helping out a residency program at Penn, uh, essentially like in the so-called screening phase, right? They've received a large number of applicants and, you know, they need to, in a sense, pick from that broader set, right? The pool of applicants for whom they have the, like the time and the capacity to review. And I guess it was in the process of kind of you know, figuring out what those filter values were, it made me realize that applying for residency is incredibly stressful for medical students, famously. I think it genuinely might be more stressful for the program directors, right? I just, I really saw there that in the, in the filters that they were these, you know, that programs were just forced to use, right? Again, like, because, you know, the constraints of practicality demanded it, that there was so much that could be improved, right? There was so much in these applications that, like I said, that, you know, that just wasn't getting read because there wasn't enough time, right? And I guess from that, we kind of realized that this is actually a problem that, you know, modern machine learning techniques can solve, right? I think, you know, the last two years of, you know, showing us anything is that actually machines can read much better than they used to. And that, right, there's so much richness in these applications that now can be pulled out and understood right, you know, not only quickly, right, but in a way that is, I think, sympathetic to, right, the applicant who's poured so much time into putting it together. It's a great story. And it's funny how some of these things do just happen on, on the couch, you know, crashing on someone's apartment for a little bit. And that's where great ideas are born a lot. You both mentioned there's stresses on both sides, the applicant side in terms of sort of the unknown, you know, take orthopedics, for example, you know, 800 to 900 applications per program, you're probably looking at a 1% chance of getting an interview if you kind of play the numbers, you know, signals helped with that a little bit, but clearly not perfect. And then on the program director side, and I appreciate you saying that because it's also for me, it's you read through and everybody is so accomplished and everybody is so great. How do you distinguish that? So the previous filters that we've had, step one scores are now pass-fail. Most schools are now going to some type of pass-fail curriculum with grades. Um, the sort of quote-unquote objective measures are now less and less. I know you can't get totally into the kind of weeds uh, of your algorithms, but what are some of the characteristics that you have found that maybe this machine learning can help us sort of sort out that we may have a difficult time doing just on our own personal reading? I mean, I think a really great example of this is research. Right, where, for example, like you know, many programs care a great deal about research. And in fact, you know, many programs I think see their almost like their primary goal is to produce like, you know, superb academic clinicians, right? You know, people who will go off and, you know, like create the next generation of like breakthroughs in, you know, in orthopedics. And you know, I think a part of this is this is a, you know, at the moment, like, you know, getting to grips with the sum of an applicant's research output. And so it's just like requires you to like look at their application and like run your eyes down the list, right? And you know, I think, for example, like where an algorithm in this can really help, right, is you can say, well, what about research do you really care about, right? You know, do you, you know, care about like having lots of posters or do you care about particular kinds of research or, you know, do you care about people who have done like a broader variety and diversity of research or people who have really zoomed in on a particular area? Right. And I think that the potential of these algorithms is that it can kind of almost flexibly be taught exactly how you would value research and then, you know, apply that to a pool. So you can just at a glance, 
right? Almost figure out and flag who you would see as an amazing researcher without you having to like literally categorize every single one, right? You know, you already know what you're looking for, but that doesn't mean you should have to look for it a thousand times in a row. I think, Alex, that your point there is one of the fundamental keys to seeing the value of the machine learning techniques is that the really big value of program directors and all of their associates is that they know what makes a good resident and a good doctor. They know what they're looking for. That is the part where it's really special to be to be a program director and have that opportunity. But the actual act of, for example, going through every single research publication in your 800, 900,000 applications to try and find those people is a task that machine learning can step in and perform for you once you have told it what you want it to do. So it allows the the human side of things to focus on the part that's most important. What do we want? What is good for our program? And then once that is determined, you can then allow the machine to go and perform that task and save you a lot of time. It's incredibly fascinating. And obviously we've seen, as you both mentioned, the increase of machine learning in a lot of different arenas, you know, the explosion of chat GPT and all this kind of other stuff that's going on. The biggest struggle that we've always talked about, at least for me, is I think Tanner, to your point, we know the intangibles that make a good resident and a good physician. Those are really hard to capture sometimes on a paper application because you've got, you know, quantifiable things like research, you've got grades. Letters of recommendation are all glowing and everyone's the greatest applicant since Charnley to, to come to, to orthopedics. So how does this help with that? Because I think that's the thing where when you talk to program directors, that's where the in-person interview becomes really helpful. But are there things in the application and the paper application that this algorithm could potentially help sort out some of those human factors? You know, we talk about grit, we talk about coachability, we talk about perseverance, you know, miles walked is another thing. Some of those things that are maybe a little bit harder to parse out. How does the algorithm help with that? Or, you know, how does that bring in that human element? I think that's a lot of people are wondering. Forgive me if I start to ramble on this. I, uh, I'm the, I, I, like I said, my, I, my, I've done a lot of natural language engineering for this. And so it's a particular love of mine. I actually think it's examples like this where, ML techniques shine the because, right, you know, all of the letters are glowing or, you know, all of the performance evaluations are both kind of the same and kind of different in a, and they're all 10 pages long and they seem to say everything and nothing all at once. The kind of, I guess, analogy that I kind of use to get to grips with it myself is that ML techniques are amazing for like comparing and understanding the differences between these documents right? Because they ultimately can look at it in a way that humans kind of don't. And weirdly, that makes the process more human. The analogy that I always come back to is if we want to figure out if a new drug works, we take a thousand people or 10,000 people and randomize them to to the experimental drug or to placebo. How do we determine if that drug works, right? And we don't, you know, sit and read a thousand charts in series and then make a kind of general determination at the end of that like well for the patients that received the drug right do do i have the general sense they did better we don't do that right we extract summary statistics right we kind of look at them you know numerically side by side and say well you know do we have like evidence of difference here 
right? I think, for example, with, you know, things like letters of recommendation, right, the human factor is so important, right, especially when, you know, ultimately you're the person that has to work with them for years as residents, but that actually when every letter can look glowing to human eyes, when viewed through an ML model, in fact, really subtle differences that may only be apparent if you had sat down and actually like, you know, put 10 letters out in front of you and like examined them side by side, you know, can suddenly show up as clear as day, right? And I'm sure right there that even, I'm sure you, you know, know, many, many letter writers, for example, who write very, very strong letters generally, And then, you know, you like a new letter lands on your desk and you're like, oh my goodness, right? I've never seen this person this enthusiastic before. I think there's a remarkable potential of ML models to really pluck out those kinds of differences and in a sense, allow like just better differentiation between candidates for figuring out which one's a better fit for your program. All right, that was like slightly long-winded, but- uh, No, that's great. Broadly got there in the end. Yeah, no, that, that was perfect. So it's interesting that we bring this up because one of the things that we struggle with, at least talking to other program directors is the, you know, the human element on our side as well. Like there's a lot of us that sort of kind of bring in the, well, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been successful. I know what I need to know because I can feel it kind of, and you know, it's implicit bias to, to some degree. And then those things get put into to this algorithm a little bit in terms of what to do. How do you convince that program director that's had success for the last 25 years and basically says, you know what, I've, I, I'm pretty good at this. You know, I've got my system, I got my algorithm. Maybe it's the right opportunity because as I mentioned, some of the things are changing. We don't have some of the data that we used to have. So how do you kind of, what's your, your pitch talk to the person that may be a little bit of a, non-believer quite yet in terms of this technology, how do you convince someone to think about this? Because I mean, it sounds great. Anything that lessens the burden and potentially helps provide, you know, a little bit better objective analysis of these applicants, you know, I think I'm I'm incredibly enthusiastic about, but, you know, it's, it's un- unproven yet. So how do you uh, convince the person that's a little bit of a doubter? I'm not sure we can do it better. I mean, hopefully that's maybe the goal for one day, but I think certainly for right now, I mean, to convince anyone to adopt, you know, a system like this, in a sense, surely, Tanner, I'd imagine the table stakes are, you know, in a sense, can it do a similar job to me, but in much less time? I don't know, Tanner, how's this, how's this shown up in your conversations with program directors? Yeah, we've definitely had people say exactly what you're talking about, Dr. Aleem, I have a system that works. And generally what has come up from our side is if we can achieve essentially the same results for you, but it will free up weeks of your time, what could you do with that time instead? Could you see more patients and provide more patient care to your patient population? Could you spend more time training residents? Or if you still want to use that time for recruitment, imagine if you took the time to call up on the phone one of the letter writers for your top 50 applicants of interest to have a 10-minute conversation and really understand deeply who that person is. So the amount of time that can be made available and what a program director can do with that for their institution, for their personal life, for recruitment, is really one of the great values of this. If we can take something that a doctor is doing that doesn't require specific doctor skills like reading research entries so that the doctor can return to what they've spent decades of their life learning how to do, which is provide healthcare and save lives and things like that. 
that seems like us a, a net benefit to society generally. Or maybe, or maybe just get some, you know, some of their evenings in October back. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, even even the free time thing is, <laughs> you know, as a program director, that comes uh, not not very often. So that's um, that's that's wonderful to hear. Obviously, we have an orthopedics focus with this, and we know the numbers in orthopedics are, are overwhelming in terms of the last couple of years. The number of applications, the number of applicants, is far exceeding the number of matched spots. We continue to have a thirty to thirty five percent unmatched rate. One of the fears that's kind of come up in the realm of the virtual interviews in the realm of sort of the less objective data is that a small number and a small pool are going to get the vast majority of the interview offers because they all kind of look, you know, you're going to kind of get the best of the best virtual and uh, interviews make it easier and people can potentially interview multiple places. I noticed one of the selling points on your website was to try to make this process more equitable. Speak a little bit on that. You know, how do we try to help with that? Because I think that's the biggest sort of fear when I'm counseling medical students is that they, you know, they see the numbers and you can be an outstanding medical student and still have a very realistic chance of not matching because you might be sort of perceived as you know, the fourth best at your school, and that may not be good enough to get you into to the interview process. So how do you see this program, this algorithm potentially sort of uh, bringing the process to be more equitable and give chances to, to more medical students to, to show what they can do? Something I've been, um, Tano, something I've been struck by, actually, I guess, in you know, conversation with program directors is actually how different their preferences are from each other. That is to say how, in a sense, you know, I guess programs are, I mean, it's like such like a, you know, preclinical medical student thing to say, I guess. I was very surprised that the, you know, actually, you know, there are lots of good ways to be a doctor. And so something that I've been really excited about actually for the potential of something like this is that in a sense, given that everyone, you know, if, you know, every program director, if they, if they had like unlimited time and could comb through every single application they receive, would probably end up picking very different people anyway because not every orthopedic surgeon has to be an amazing researcher right not every orthopedic surgeon right you know necessarily is going to be the president of the orthopedic surgery interest group but that in a sense by taking some of the burden off of those numbers to do the selecting that actually you know the like the breadth of people who can be offered a, you know, a position in orthopedic surgery widens. Yeah, I think that the big value of the machine learning for this specific piece is that decisions that have to be made about who to interview can now take in a lot more information than they could before to help diversify the people that are being truly considered. So even with program directors that we've spoken to that are very, very excited about holistic review, nearly all of them say, yeah, we apply a couple of filters before, just because the time constraints do not allow the review of the hundreds or thousands of applications that are being received. So with machine learning, you're not stuck with filters that are, for example, step scores, like you have to score a 230 to even enter our review pile. There's no real difference between a 229 and a 230 on step but people are being separated in this artificial way. With machine learning, instead of caring so much about a step score, you can now tell the software, I want people who are in the top half as far as having a growth mindset demonstrated throughout their application. 
Or if you are an academic center and you care a lot about research, you can say the way that I'm going through these applications is I want the top half of people who are producing the type of research that we're looking for. And so this will really allow each program to focus closely on what its unique mission is instead of all programs having to default to some of the easily applied filters because that's all that's available to them. That's really, really fascinating. So maybe let's move into the practical kind of application, you know, talk to us about as you're setting this up with the program director, what's the process kind of, you know, how do you set up the algorithm sort of how long does it take? What are the kind of meetings that you have? And you've already mentioned, you know, just in the kind of couple dozen programs that you've worked with so far, a lot of striking differences in terms of what, what they're looking for. So clearly this seems like we can customize it per as you mentioned, each each program's unique mission. So how does that process work? Kind of what's that timeline look like? And then do you have to do any kind of run-throughs or, or anything like that before you kind of see a finished product? And obviously, I'm assuming that each year of data you get, it refines itself, you learn more, and it can only can potentially get better and better theoretically as you get more and more uh, programs and more and more applications kind of within that. I mean, you can uh, you can go on to medicrasic.com and sign up for a free account right now if you so please. But yeah, I mean, not to turn this into a not to turn this into a sales or demo meeting, but <laughs> <laughs> so to answer your question, Doctor Aleem, the, the software, the way that it exists in its current form, is that it really has sort of two different parts to it, and the first part is the part that program directors really get involved in where they teach the software what they are looking for, what works for their specific program. And so it's through this first part that the software is able to learn, how does this program director want me to evaluate these applications? And that's where the uniqueness comes in from one program to the next, and where the software will come up with very different ideas at the end of that session in order to know how to evaluate those applications. That process, it depends on how extensive the program director wants to be, how much they want to go into, but it's generally about a 35 to 40 minute process to get the software to understand everything that you want it to do. The hard part for the software then is applying what it's learned to the applications as it reads them. For the program director, that part's easy. You just sit back. But the, the software has to do a ton of work as it applies all of that stuff. And so that takes a little bit longer for orthopedic programs. It's about an hour, probably based on the number of applications that you have. But that's really the important fundamental link to understanding how machine learning should be used on the program side. The machine learning should be used only to apply the preferences of the program. It should never be making decisions about what is a good applicant or a bad applicant. All of that depends on what the program is trying to do with their residency program. So the program director has to spend that initial half hour, 45 minutes of investment time to transfer their own ideas about what they want to the software. So the software is really just a workhorse to be able to read all the applications and apply those ideas much, much faster than a, than a human can. I have to say, Tana, I've been very impressed with how some programs have ended up using this. In a, I, we've had everything from, like, you know, for example, the the PD and then the and the APD together, right? Do the survey individually and then compare the results and either like adjudicate or just say like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know you cared about this so much. Like 
And the other ones is we've had individual PDs complete the um, assessment multiple times in a sense, because, you know, for example, like, you know, we have an, you know, ortho scholar track, which is, you know, particularly designed for people who, who, who want to become, you know, researchers. And then we'll, I'll do it again for the kind of, you know, the conventional track. That's, that's amazing. I mean, you're taking saying two, two and a half hours for a process that may take us almost a month and a half for a lot of kind of, if you're doing that, that holistic review, that's, uh, that's impressive at that time saving, you undersold that completely. So um, that's, that's great to hear. I know we can't go into the you know individual programs that y'all have engaged, but have you noticed maybe a trend in specialties or a trend in institutions, whether it's geographic or kind of more traditional academic institutions or others that have seemed to kind of be early adopters into this technology? Yeah, great question. Up until this point, we have seen that specialties that are more likely to be early adopters are commonly specialties who might have a more acute sense of urgency with getting the applications read and analyzed and things like that. So specialties that are receiving many, many applications per spot have seemed to be more interested than those that maybe it's not quite as difficult to get through all of them, which I think makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Um, As far as geographic patterns, I have not noticed any, although we haven't specifically analyzed that. Um, I haven't seen anything that's abundantly obvious. This is incredibly fascinating and you guys have really piqued my interest in this. So it's going to be really fascinating to see how y'all go this. I wanted to kind of pivot just a little bit. So machine learning, we talked about AI a little bit. One of the kind of big topics that we've talked about on the program director side is how are applicants going to use AI machine learning in their own applications to kind of craft and create what looks like a great applicant. As you mentioned, we can put in our own preferences and we can read these things, but how do you distinguish that? And if you're thinking about this on the applicant side, you know, well, can I put in something and say, you know, here's my experiences, you know, create an application that makes me look or shows my own potential in, like you said, growth mindset, uh, perseverance, research kind of thing to, to do that. Clearly it's going to happen. And clearly I'm sure we're going to read some personal statements this year that were created by chat GPT or other AI. And I'm just kind of interested to kind of hear your opinions about where, where that's going, you know, unrelated to your own endeavors. I'm kind of on the fence. I think, you know, it's one of those, well, we use technology to help our you know selves get better all the time. Why not use it? But it's also seems a little bit disingenuous in terms of, you know, that human element, but clearly the computers, you know, the machine learning have a more human element than, than we used to have. So just interesting kind of your thoughts about what that's going to look like. This is probably the first year we're going to see potentially some of that. And, you know, I'm not going to be able to really distinguish it. I think I've, I've seen a couple of colleagues send me their own crafted personal statements using some of these AI algorithms. And I'll tell you, they are great and they reflect really, really well, but just kind of thoughts on that. No, I think it's an incredibly relevant question. As someone who spends a lot of time, I guess, with the kinds of models that, you know, that, you know, for example, like the ones that power ChatGPT, right? Large language models, right? Most, like many of these models are essentially trained by just feeding them enormous amounts of text scraped from the internet and essentially asking them like, oh, given this text, predict the next word in the sentence. And so I think an interesting kind of side effect of that is that, you know, because they typically spit out the most or almost the most predictable next next word, right? You, in a sense, if you 
ask it something generic, you will almost certainly receive something <laughs> generic. You know, I think, you know, if I were to, you know, type in like, right, write me a personal statement for orthopedic surgery, you know, in the first three sentences would be, I tore my, my, I tore my ACL in college. <laughs> Sorry, I've read a lot of orthopedic personal statements. Yeah, no, that, that's uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And so I think an interesting thing about this system, I hope, is that people don't feel the need to craft such a persona around themselves because they can be instead comfortable in knowing that the program that most wants someone like them, right, will be able to identify them from their pool of applicants, right? If they all they need to do is write an application that is a true reflection of who they are, right? You know, you know, applicants can always you know, write, I'm sure, to put themselves in the best light. But I mean, that, I guess that's kind of no different as, than what happens now. Right. You know, I, I think in terms of, you know, the ethics of using AI to write a personal statement, I mean, I feel like that's not really our position to judge. Although, I guess, to know, I suppose, um, ERAS's terms of um, use this year do expressly prohibit that. I think that, you know, ultimately the goal of an application is to tell a story that only you can tell and that, you know, maybe these you know tools will help people put that into words, but that, you know, that is a, yeah, certainly I think an ongoing cultural question that it's still being litigated. Yeah, I think just to add a little bit to what Alex summarized very well, I think that there's two possible outcomes from this. One is that program directors simply stop using the personal statement as a way to evaluate applicants because it becomes more or less worthless. But the other way to look at it is if chat GPT is creating personal statements that are more effusive and more sympathetic to the applicant, even before chat GPT, applicants could lie and they could pay someone to write a personal statement for them. And yet we were all still using the personal statements to evaluate applications. So I don't know that much has changed other than just the tool that is being used. Uh, there's still always people who will act dishonestly or unethically, and there's people who won't. And that's just how it's kind of always been. Great. Guess, well said. Dr. Liam, I guess I'm, I'm just curious to, as I said, it's, you, know, you said you were on the fence about it, so I don't, you know, I'm not asking you to like come down hard on either side, which is a... If you read a personal statement from an applicant and the personal statement was a true reflection of their story, but they merely used, uh, you know, an ML algorithm, you know, they used, you know, like, for, like a large language model or similar product to just essentially turn that true story into better or more compelling prose, right? Just so it was, you know, communicated more clearly, right? right? How would you feel about that? I think that's to me is, is the value of using a tool like this. And that's what we tell the students, you know, this is their opportunity to, as you mentioned, give us a true reflection of yourself. Cause that's really what we're doing. Holistic review is such a important thing that we're doing now in residency selection. And so we do want to make sure that we're really casting and understanding yourself. And if you're using something and, you know, we'd send out personal statements to get edited all the time. We have, you know, medical editors, we have English major friends that help do that for us. It's not like no one writes a personal statement on their own and doesn't have it get vetted by somebody. So I, I, again, I don't think it's wrong, but I think to your point, it has to be accurate and has to be honest. And if that's, that's where I think the, the concern becomes, because if you put in these 
as you mentioned, the sort of preconceived, you know, things that we think that students think they need to show in an orthopedic application, but it's not a true reflection of yourself. That's where the trouble becomes, you know, it's a false narrative of who you are and you're putting in things that you think are going to reflect well and buzzwords that you think program directors are going to want to kind of take a look at. That's where I think that the, the trouble becomes, but I think we all agree if we, if we really are trying to be honest and have an honest assessment about what we want, I think the use of this technology makes a lot of sense on both sides, you know, to, to better present yourself as an applicant. And from my side, to have a better understanding about how I can sort through all these applications and really try to find the qualities that, that are important to, to, to our mission. So, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly interesting time uh, where we are right now with things. So. This has been an awesome discussion. Tanner and Alex, you guys are way more entrepreneurial and creative than I ever could imagine. And it's impressive that y'all are doing this while in medical school. So I am really excited to kind of see where this takes you. As a reminder to our listeners, metacratic.com is the website. It sounds like it's a very easy piece to navigate, especially requesting a demo and trying to get kind of things set up. Any closing thoughts that y'all may have? Any closing words in terms of applicants or program directors as we go through this process? And uh, Tanner, you said you're applying right now. So uh, best of luck to you. Thank you. Just a, a correction for the record. I'll apply next year. Next year. Oh, sorry. So you next got one year. more year. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Wait, Don't want to make me older than I am. <laughs> Wait, Tanner, is, is this whole, is this whole venture like a, like a long play to, to match into orthopedics? That's right. exactly oh, right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's why, that's why I took a year off is to meet Dr. Aleem and, and try and, and match at uh, his university. <laughs> no, but uh, as far as closing remarks go, it was great to be here. We really appreciated the opportunity. I think that there's, there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstanding about what machine learning does. And I think if we can help to clarify that this is a, a fantastic tool that will augment what program directors want to be able to do with their applications, then that would be a success for us. Yeah, I, I'd say it's almost grossly sappy to say, but I really do see the that there are facets of this technology that will make re the whole residency application process like more human, not less, right, for people on both sides. That is fantastic. I appreciate the time. Tanner and Alex, best of luck with the venture. Again, metacratic.com. This has been a really, really great discussion. Thanks, y'all.